0: This morning we'll be in Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one. One of the things that Paul prayed for the Colossians, Colossian believers, uh, early on in this letter, is that they would joyously give thanks to the Father for their share in the inheritance that they received by virtue of the death of Christ. In other words, he wants the believers to appreciate their salvation. And so this prayer led Paul to praise Christ who is the author of creation and also the means of redemption. He is transcendent, but he's also imminent. He has made everything that is, but he's also made a way for everything to be reconciled to Himself. So He's not just transcendent where He's uh, the Creator and He's far off and removed. He's also near. And so if Paul's prayer is that they would joyously thank God for that reconciliation, then it makes sense that he would spend time reflecting on that reconciliation some more. And that's what he does here in this short passage that we're going to look at this morning. And I think if we, like the Colossians, are going to appreciate our reconciliation and give thanks to God for our reconciliation, then we need to think about what it involves. It involves three things. My former condition, my present condition, and my ongoing expectation. And we'll look at those as we uh, look into this text. So Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 21 This is the Word of God. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. In this text, Paul shows us that my reconciliation with God was affected by Christ. My reconciliation with God was affected by Christ. And this truth ought to have an effect on how we live. This text is is one sentence in the Greek language. It's also one sentence in the english text as well and the main clause or the main thought of this one sentence is found at the beginning of verse 22 yet he has now reconciled you so the main sentence we want to boil this entire text verses 21 to 23 down to one phrase or one clause it is god has reconciled you Everything else in these verses flow from that main thought. And so what we need to do this morning with the Colossian believers is to think of the great privilege that we have that we have been reconciled to God. In verse 19, Paul stated that Christ was bringing all things into reconciliation by the blood of the cross. And so we could call verses 15 to 20, a Christology, the study of Christ. But Christology is a type of theology, and theology is not meant for academic knowledge alone. It's meant to be practical. And so Paul takes that doctrine of Christ in verses 15 through 20, and now he talks about what it means for us. The practical part of verses 15 through 20 is found in verses 21 to 23. So what does it mean that Christ is supreme over all? What does it mean that Christ is supreme in creation and supreme in reconciliation? Well, here's what it means in verses 21 to 23. It means that we have been changed from our former condition. It means what we are now, reconciled to God. And what it means, it also means what we must be in verse 23. Alright, so let's look at, at each of these first. Reconciliation means freedom from my former enslavement. Here's the past idea. This is our past condition. Freedom from my former enslavement. Notice what I was there before how Paul describes. From what were we reconciled? Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. So here's what we are reconciled from. We were reconciled from our former alienation from God. You see that there? And then from our corrupt hearts. And then from our hostility towards God. So we'll start with this first one. First, our alienation from God. We were reconciled from this former alienation from God. The idea of alienation is being out of place. That we didn't belong to God. We didn't belong in His presence. When I traveled to another country... In another culture, I am considered an alien of that country and that culture. I don't belong. I'm a stranger. I don't know the culture, the customs, the language. I am an alien. And that is exactly what we were like in our former life. We were alienated from God. We don't belong in His presence because of our sin. We have no business coming into His presence. We were estranged from God. You see, before God did a work of regeneration in you, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.12, you were excluded from life in God. You were estranged, strangers of the promise, and you had no hope living without God in the world. That was you. That was me. Before God reconciled us to Himself. So, in order for us to understand and appreciate our current reconciliation, we first need to look at what we were. We were aliens. Second, we had corrupt hearts. Our corrupt hearts. God freed us from our own corrupt hearts. You see that in verse 21 when he says, hostile in mind. It wasn't just that we were aliens outside. You know, when I go to another country, I'm not hostile towards that country. right? I want to be there. I have something to do there. I want to enjoy their culture and so on. But, but we were much worse than that, than just a traveler in another country, right? When when we were alienated from God, we were also estranged from God and opposed to God. We were hostile in our minds toward God. We hated God. We were rotten to the core. Paul describes every person before salvation as those whose foolish hearts have been darkened in Romans 121 that we are not only enemies of God on the outside, but we're also enemies of God on the inside, and we are warring in our souls against the God who created us. And this is what reconciliation does for us. It brings us out of that former alienation and hostility. And thirdly, our hostility towards God is seen there that we are engaged in evil deeds. See it wasn't just that we were aliens from God's perspective that that God was hostile towards us but it also was that we were hostile toward God towards God You see psychology says that man is good by nature but the bible says that we are corrupt by nature that we are born sinners and we sin because we are sinners that we are born godless, self-serving people with hostile hearts that result in what the text says here, evil deeds. And so this is a huge problem, isn't it? Because God is at war with us and we are at war with God. And this and what's worse is that we don't even want to change. We have we need something That is outside of us. We need the unmerited and even unwanted favor of God. We don't want to change. The reason I know that is because Romans 8, 7 says, The mind set on the flesh, me before I was saved. The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, and it's not even able to do so. So it doesn't... It doesn't have the ability and he doesn't have the ability and he doesn't even want to subject itself to the law of God. We're in a really difficult spot before we come to Christ. In fact, we couldn't be in a more desperate state. We were enslaved to our master sin. We were at war with God. We had no desire to come to God. And so, Christian, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget what, from what God rescued you. Don't forget that it, if He had not rescued you, you would be destroying yourself. And you would be headed on a pathway toward eternal destruction and eternal death without God. So this ought to, this ought to bring us great joy as we reflect on our former condition and what God saved us from. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. What if you're a non-Christian this morning? If you have not been reconciled to God, this is talking about you. This is your current condition, not your former condition. And if you are a non-Christian this morning, can I encourage you to keep listening Because the news gets better. The news gets better. Because now Paul explains to us that Christ provided us a way. Every person who will respond to Him in faith has the opportunity to come to God and to be reconciled. So if we're at war, what do we need? What's the opposite of war? Peace. We need peace with God. Who is going to affect peace between us and God? If God's hostile towards us, And we're hostile toward God, and we don't even want to come to Him. Who is going to to affect peace? And the answer comes in verse 22. Maybe. Verse 22 Reconciliation means peace with God through Christ. Reconciliation means peace with God through Christ. So now we move from our former condition at war with God to our present condition. Christ reconciled us to God. Do you see that transition in verses 21 and 22? So, verse 21, although you were formerly... And then verse 22, yet He has now reconciled you. There's the transition. I love this conjunction here that begins verse 22. Yet. Yet now He has. It's a contrastive conjunction. It reminds us of Ephesians 2, 4 and Titus 3, 4. But God, right? I was once dead in sin. I was once uh, enemy of God. I was once enslaved to sin. But God, who is rich in mercy. That's the same idea that comes here. We were formerly aliens, stranger, hostile towards God, yet Christ. That's the idea of verse 22. This is great news. In fact, this is the best news that you will ever hear. And if it's not the best news that you will ever hear, as Rico Tice says, then you don't fully understand it. It is the best news that you will ever hear. That Christ has provided a way for you to do what you cannot do, to effect peace with God. He has provided a way for you to to be reconciled to God, to no longer be at war with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How does this happen? How are we reconciled to God? And the means of our reconciliation is through the death of Christ. Look at that with me in the text. Yet He, Christ, remember the reason we know He here is referring to Christ and not God is because of verses 15-20 through which are talking about Christ. Right, all the way back up to verse 13. The kingdom of His beloved Son, talking about God's beloved Son, Christ, in whom we have redemption of sins. And then all of 15 through 20 is talking about Christ. And then verse 22 is, continues that thought, yet Christ has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death. So here's the means of our reconciliation. How can we possibly end this war with God? And the only way is through Christ's fleshly body. To the death of Christ. That's why Romans 5.1 again says, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the means of our reconciliation. That Christ had to die for our sin. Christ had to affect our peacemaking with God. Christ had to be the one who removed the hostility that God had toward you by assuaging God's wrath. Who was going to satisfy God's wrath? because of your sin, because of my sin. Only a perfect sacrifice. And the reason that Paul uses the phrase fleshly body is probably to distinguish it from the body of Christ. So he's not saying, um, yet now he, Christ has reconciled you in the body of Christ through death. He's saying through Christ's fleshly body. So he's, he's saying that He actually became human and died on your behalf. That Jesus died physically. And He did that in order to bring you to God so that He could remove the hostility that you had toward God and that God had toward you. Someone had to pay the penalty for your sin and for mine. And and Christ removed the hostility that God had toward us by offering His body as a sacrifice for our sins. And He also removed the hostility that we had toward us. Do you see that there's hostility in both directions? God was wrathful towards us and we were wrathful towards God. Jesus removed them both with His death. He satisfied God's wrath by dying for our sin, paying the penalty for it, and He cleansed our consciences, and that took care of our hostility towards God. He changed us. You see, in the Old Testament, the sacrifices could never do this. They couldn't cleanse a person internally They could only make a person ritually clean or externally clean, right? So that they would have the ability to come into the presence of God. Only externally, though. They could never cleanse the heart. And that's why the author of Hebrews says that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All the sacrifice didn't take away their sins. They only symbolized the, the the, uh, the sacrifice that they needed. You see, they needed a better sacrifice than a spotless animal, and we need one as well. We need the spotless Lamb of God to die for us so that He can cleanse us both externally, our hostility towards God and His towards us, and internally, cleansing our consciences, our hearts. So this is how reconciliation is accomplished, through the death of Christ. The purpose of our reconciliation is found in the second part of verse 22 and it begins with the phrase, in order to. That shows the idea of purpose. In order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So why did Christ reconcile you to God? Why did, God stop, why did Christ stop the battle between you and God? And the answer is to make you a trophy of His grace. The purpose of our reconciliation is so that He can present us on the final day as holy and blameless. Christ wants to do something in you. He wants to change you. He doesn't simply want to rescue you from hell. And we should see this as a guarantee of our reconciliation. That because Christ saved us from our former alienation and hostility in mind, that we can be confident that He will completely transform us so that we are presented on the final day, at the last judgment, as holy. Holy and blameless and beyond reproach, worthy to receive the grace that's given to us by God. You see, God did not save us only for the purpose of rescuing us from hell. This text shows us that He saved us for a purpose, to change us. Maybe an example would help. Suppose a couple adopts a child out of sex trafficking. The goal there is not simply to get the child to no longer be abused and enslaved. That's part of it. But adoption means more than that, doesn't it? And those of you who have been adopted know this, that it means that 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 family welcomes you into their family and makes you part of their own. They want to see you changed. They want to see you a part of their family. And and I would say the same thing to us. God simply didn't rescue us from hell so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's part of it. But there's so much more to it. He wants us to be a part of His family. He wants us to live like someone who's a part of His family. He wants us to be changed into the image of Christ. He wants to transform us so that we will be a trophy of His grace. So that on that final day, God can hold us up and say, See what I made out of this person who was once my enemy. And all praise goes to God because of His great grace that He's shown to us. So, what we were, verse 21, aliens and enemies. What we are now, at peace with God through Christ's death. So that we will be made into a trophy of His grace. But this reconciliation is not real unless we do, verse 23, unless we persevere in the faith. So, is it there? Reconciliation means, finally, perseverance in the faith. Reconciliation means perseverance in the faith. In other words, this is our ongoing expectation that we are, as believers, to persevere in the true gospel. So here's how I would state the principle of verse 23. My future glorification is conditioned on my perseverance. My future glorification is conditioned on my perseverance. Now, let me show you that from the te- text and then I'll explain because you might be thinking of some, some, uh, some opposing views and so on. Okay? But let me show you that from the text. So, Christ, verse 22, is going to present us as holy and blameless, but then notice the very next word in verse 23. If. If you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. That word, if, introduces a conditional clause. If you do this, then verse 22 will happen. So, we could say it this way, if the Colossians persevere, then Christ will present them spotless on the last day. Now, you might have trouble buying into this idea and even just reading this verse in its context doesn't seem to, to square with what the rest of the Scriptures teach about a grace-based salvation. It sounds like we're talking about a works-based salvation here. That if I persevere, then God will present, or Christ will present me as spotless. But let me give you three reasons why I know that is not the case. That is why our perseverance is a condition for our final salvation. First, is that we would never deny the opposite. We would never deny the opposite. I mean, what do you call a person who is the opposite of verse 23? What do you call a person who does not continue in the faith? What do you call a person who does not remain firmly established and steadfast? What do you call a person who is moved away from the hope of the gospel that they have heard? What do you call that person? An unbeliever? An apostate? Okay, you are with me? A person who simply pray, prays a prayer that they were told to pray is not necessarily a Christian as much as might, we might wish that they are. Do you remember Simon the magician in Acts 8 who believed and was baptized? And then he apparently didn't persevere until the end. And Peter said, you have a gall of bitterness and iniquity in your heart. What about Demas and Judas? Guys who actually spoke in the name of Jesus. <clears throat> in Luke 10, Jesus sends out His disciples and says, Go and perform miracles in My name. Speak on behalf of My name. Judas was one of those twelve because they went off in pairs. Judas was doing things in the name of Christ. And that's why on the last day when, he says, when Judas says something like, But Jesus, did I not perform all these miracles in Your name? Did I not cast out demons? Jesus is not going to say, oh yeah, you know what? You did. What is he going to say? Depart from me. I don't have a spiritual relationship with you and I never did. So the first reason why I know that our perseverance is a condition for our final salvation is because the opposite is definitely true. That is that, that the opposite of persevering is falling away. And those who fall away will not be presented as spotless and blameless on the last day. So that I know that the opposite is true. The second reason why I know this conditional expectation is not a works-based salvation, but that it is true, is because there's a difference between condition and basis. And this is probably where you're, you're, you're thinking. Okay? The condition... Is simply by the means by which something happens. In other words, it's required to happen. In order for this to result in this, this has to happen. That's why the if statement is there. If you continue firm until the end, then you will be presented spotless on the day of Christ. You See, there's a difference, though, between condition and basis. The basis of a thing is the source, the starting point. See we are our perseverance is not the basis of our final salvation. It's only a condition. It's something that has to happen, but it's not the basis for it. For example, suppose I have a $100 bill up here and I don't. Okay? And I said something like this and I'm just for illustration. I said, "You can have it if you come up here." Okay, what's the condition for you receiving that $100? I said, you can have it if you come up here. If you don't come up, you don't get it. Right? The basis for... The the condition for you receiving it is for you to come up. But the basis for it is my generosity. Or my bank account. Right? My income. You see, your salvation is not conditioned on your perseverance. Or it's not based on your perseverance, excuse me. It's based on Christ's finished finished work. It's based on the, the reconciliation that He effected, the transaction that He made and said to God, God, I give you my life for theirs so that they can be a part of your family. That's what it's based on. That's what our final salvation is based on. It's based on the promise that He has made that all who come to Him and believe will be saved. But here's what we need to recognize. That same salvation that is based on the finished work of Christ is also conditioned upon our perseverance. It's conditioned upon our repentance and faith initially. Right? We would agree with this, that a person who doesn't repent and believe is not going to be saved. That's a condition for them to come to Christ in order for them to be reconciled to God. But again, it's not the basis. A person who doesn't repent and believe initially and ongoingly is not a believer. That is condition of being presented spotless until the day of Christ. And so what Jesus is saying when He calls us to follow him is to follow me down this road, I will provide for you eternal life." And if I say to him, "No, I'm going the other way. What do I show with my actions and my words? And I don't trust Him to take me to eternal life, or I don't want it. I'll trust in my own efforts to get what I want. I will not remain steadfast. I will move away from the hope of the gospel, which is the opposite of what a believer does, right? All who have been reconciled to God from their alienation and estrangement from God, verse 21... And have been brought to peace with God through Christ's death, will do verse 23. They will persevere. They will continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So the first reason I know that this condition is, or, or that this persever- that our perseverance is a condition for our final salvation is because we agree with the opposite. We acknowledge the opposite. The opposite is true. The second reason is that there's a difference between a condition and a basis. The third reason I know that is because Paul has already stated that, that we cannot earn our salvation. Paul has already made clear that, that the only way that we can become to God is through Christ. That's what all chapter 1 is about. It's about Christ reconciling us to Himself. And I also know that Paul is not expecting these readers to turn away. Skip down to chapter 2, verse 5. Notice what Paul thinks about them. Verse 5, For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. So what is Paul expecting there from the believers? He says, if you remain steadfast in chapter 1, verse 23. And here he's saying, I rejoice to see your good discipline that you're persevering in the faith. And so I would suggest for those three reasons that our perseverance is a condition for our final salvation. My future glorification is conditioned on my perseverance. Or let me say it another way. The expression or the evidence, the fruit that I am reconciled and that I will be glorified is that I am now persevering in the faith. That's an expression of what Christ has already done and a guarantee of what Christ will do is that I now am persevering in the faith. So let's think of a few principles here as we conclude. First, this passage is for non-Christians. If you're a non-Christian today, can I appeal to you on behalf of God? You are an enemy of God. You were born an enemy. I was born an enemy of God. And if Christ is the sovereign creator, as we saw last week, and if He's the loving sustainer of the universe, and if Christ is the head of the church and the agent of redemption, did you know He expects a response from you? And that is that you must submit yourself to Him in repentance and faith. It's something that all of us must do. This is why He and the disciples throughout the New Testament called for a response. It was a, it was a command. Repent and believe. Not, would you ask Jesus into your heart? Do you, would you like to do that? Would you? No, it's you repent and believe. You are in opposition toward the Holy God. And now you need to come in, in, and recognize your sinful condition. Make a decisive turn. That's what it means to repent. Make a decisive turn from your repentance towards God and believe, because the Bible says that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Do you realize, non-Christian, that you are either with Christ or you are His enemy? There's no middle ground. You are either reconciled to God through Christ or you are hostile toward God and an enemy in your mind. And the great news of the Gospel is That Jesus has provided a way for you to come to God, to no longer be at war with God, to be at peace with God. But at the same time, He doesn't expect you to just sit on your hands. He expects you to he, he, He commands all people everywhere to repent. And so, on behalf of Jesus, I say to you this morning, be reconciled to God. If you don't know how to do that, then please don't put it off any longer. Maybe you've thought about this before and, and just thought, you know what? It's just not the right time. There's too many things going on in my life or I know I'm going to have to give this up if I do that. Can I just just uh, commend to you, recommend that, that you turn to Christ today. Don't put it off any longer. You don't know how much longer your life will last. I don't know how, how much longer my life will last if we're just constantly presuming upon God's grace that, you know what, God's going to be... He'll give me more time and I'll do it when I'm older and I get past uh, some of these challenges that I'm working through right now or maybe enjoying some of the pleasures of life, we don't have that guarantee that we will even live another day. And so be reconciled to God today. And if you don't know how to do that, then would you talk to one of the members of this church or to myself We'd love to show you from the Scriptures how you can know that you have peace with God. This passage is for non-Christians to recognize that Christ has provided a way. But this passage is also for, for Christians. Let me just give you four applications if you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning. Number one, glory in the true Gospel. Consider what God has done for you. I mean, this passage should cause a sense of joy to well up within you. This should remind you about what, the, what a great work of God has been done in you, that He has brought you out of darkness into light. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance with the saints in life. He has rescued you from the domain of darkness. He has transferred you into the kingdom of His beloved Son so that you could have citizenship into Christ's future kingdom. He has reconciled you to Himself through the death of Jesus so that you are no longer at war with God, but are at peace. He is positively inclined toward you now and you toward Him. And the purpose of your salvation is not just rescue, but also transformation. That He is transforming you into the image of Christ so that you will be presented as spotless and blameless on the day of judgment. Believer, this morning, reflect on your great salvation. See what a great love that the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called... The children of God, and such we are. Secondly, persevere in the true gospel. The test or the reality of genuine faith is that a person perseveres. You will make it to the end, and you will be presented as spotless if you continue in the faith. And so I say to you, believer. Continue in the faith. Persevere. Remain steadfast and established. Do not move away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. How do we do that? How do we persevere in the faith? How do we persevere in the faith? And that leads to our third application. That is, cling to the true gospel cling to the true gospel this is why we're constantly being reminded in the scriptures about the gospel it's not just so that we can come to an initial recognition of our sin and our need for a savior that's part of it but it's so that remember most of these letters all these letters in the new testament are written to churches or to pastors so they're written to believers and yet they still remind us about the Gospel, don't they? And and the reason for that is that we need the Gospel from beginning to middle to end. That's the whole point of Colossians. And this is what the Holy Spirit expects us, to cling to the true Gospel. Look again at that third line in verse 23. And not moved away from the hope of the Gospel that you've heard. So how do we persevere? Well, we need to hold on to and not move away from the hope of the Gospel. We need to... Cling to the gospel. We need to remain established and steadfast in the truth. So you have the foundation. You have the basis. And you have the means. You have God's Holy Spirit. You even have the presence of Christ. And so now remain steadfast. Don't be like the foolish man who heard the word but didn't obey it. If you have a good foundation, you're like the wise man who built his house on the rock. The wise man stopped trusting in his own works in order to satisfy God's wrath and instead trusted in Christ alone. And as a result, he worked. As a result, he worked. He didn't work in order to receive God's favor, not for salvation, but because of salvation. Christian, you cannot work for your salvation. You cannot work in order to be saved. Your works are not the basis of your salvation, but they are a result. And so work. Cling to the true gospel. Remember what Christ has done. Thank God for it often. Don't be moved away from the gospel that has been preached to you. Don't buy into the lies of the false teachers out there who are offering another gospel. Believe in the same gospel that is being preached all over the world and that is clearly explained to us in the Scriptures, the Gospel of Jesus, that He alone can save. And then fourthly, live the true Gospel. This goes along with the second one, persevere, but live the true Gospel. If only true believers persevere in the faith, then here's what I would say to you, believer. Persevere in the faith. If only true believers persevere, then persevere. If only true believers love righteousness and hate evil, if only true believers obey God's commandments because they love Him, then we must love righteousness and hate evil. We must obey God's commandments because we love Him. We must do what Paul said in Philippians two twelve and 13, to work out the salvation that God is working within us. Only those who persevere are eternally saved. So persevere in the faith and in the good works that God has called you to do. And do it with the strength that God supplies. And in the end, you won't get the credit. Praise God. God will. Because He's the one who not only gave you the ability to do it and the desire to do it when He saved you, but He also provided the means by which you could do it. He's, remember, Christ is the, is the sustainer. He holds all things together, we saw. And the same thing is true about our spiritual lives. He's the one who holds us all the way to the end. That God is the one who accomplishes this this final work. So in the end, we can't say, well, at least you had my perseverance, right, God? No, all of that will be dependent upon His grace as well. And it is. So, just as your initial salvation depended upon God's grace, your perseverance depends on God's grace. So, dependently trust in God as you hold on to the truth of God and continue on in the good works that God has called you to do. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to be reminded about the great work that Christ has done on our behalf. Lord, we did not deserve anything but Your just wrath. Lord, why would You make us to hear Your voice and enter while, this room, while thousands more have made the choice and, and would rather starve than come? They, 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 they see the Gospel as wretched. Lord, why would You choose us to hear the Gospel and to respond in faith? We don't know why, but we are certainly grateful. And Lord, we want to make our lives an hallelujah a praise to You each day so that every thought is made captive to the obedience of Christ and every work is done out of the strength that You supply. And Lord, we want to, to um, continually improve in, in our understanding of the truth and in our expression of the truth, in our obedience to You. Lord, we have a long way to go. We are far from holy. We're far from spotless and blameless. But we know that Christ is making us into that and that we have a responsibility not to coast, but to be complicit with the work that Your Spirit is doing within us. So, Lord, help us to obey and to follow You. And, Lord, for those here who don't know Christ, who don't have a, a relationship with You, who are at war with You, Lord, would You cleanse their hearts through the power of this Gospel? Would You help them to see their need to turn in saving faith? Whether it be a young person or an adult who's been in church for a long time or, or just new, Lord, would You just would you give them the eyes to see? And would You be glorified in, in bringing them to salvation? And Lord, may we live our lives with, with those kinds of, of um, people in view. Certainly, we have responsibility to ourselves and, and to build one another up in the, in the most holy faith. But, but Lord, how many people around us, in our families, in our neighborhoods, and in our workplace, and recreation, how many of those people have no clue of who Jesus is and what He's done and are headed on a path towards eternal destruction? Would You draw them to Yourself and use us to share the Gospel with them? Lord, many will praise Your name because of what You do through us. We pray for Your help in Jesus' name. Amen.